0: Returning now to the, it's not a zero-sum game piece, I want to look at the point. Public colleges and universities cannot regulate protected speech based on its viewpoint and spaces that a public institution is open for expressive uses, such as the Quad or student center, policies affecting individual expression must be viewpoint neutral. This means the institution may not regulate speech based on the perspective or ideology of the speech. No protests in the Quad in support of abolishing the death penalty runs the of the First Amendment because the rule treats speech differently based on one Point of view. capital punishment. If you support the death penalty, you can protest. If you don't, you cannot. Many historical movements that challenge the status quo, including women's suffrage and the integration of schools, began with ideas government officials deemed dangerous to society. Without the First Amendment and protections of all speech, those social movements might never have progressed. And um, yeah, viewpoint neutral. Institutions cannot block certain um, speech based on a viewpoint. Some regulation of speech or some regulation protects speech is permissible and spaces that are generally open for public expression, like a campus quad. One effective way to set limits needed to support an institution's goals, such as controlling sound levels when classes meet, is to create time, place, and mayor restrictions. Here's an example. Amplified sound is permitted in designated outdoor locations from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. This rule applies no matter the subject of the speech, for example, abortion or the viewpoint, for or against, no matter who you are, or what you, your message is, you can only use the amplified sound in or designated outdoor locations, placed from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. on designated days of the week. Time, time, place, and mayor restrictions must leave open ample alternative channels for communicating the speaker's message. In this example, the speaker is still free to share the message at other times, just without amplified sound. And yeah, um, for them, I mean, in this case, during the views on abortion, like it's, you it can have all types of views, just you know, on any issue, even. Um, Just there's certain restrictions on how you can do it. Campuses can choose which spaces to open for individual expression. What if a student hangs a poster of a Nazi flag from her dorm room window? Students across the courtyard complain about the hateful iconography and ask that the flag be removed. What the institution can do depends in part whether its policies allow students to post images or messages that face the outside. If so, it generally will need to allow all protected speech, regardless of viewpoint. Another option is to institute a policy, as many UC campuses have, that prohibits any postings facing outward in residence halls. This policy would be an example of a time place placement restriction. To meet the First Amendment's requirements, institutions should enforce expression-related policies consistently and in a viewpoint-neutral way. And, um, yeah, so some places have begun to do, just not allow absolutely anything with any words or even expression on the forms of maybe students' rooms. Use your voice to respond to harmful speech. It's important to acknowledge and address the damage hateful speech causes even if you can't regulate it. Protecting the speech, protecting the right to hateful speech in order to protect all speech comes at a cost. Studies document that exposure to hateful speech can negatively impact individuals' academic performance and self-esteem. In addition, members of marginalized communities Groups are most often the targets of vile speech. Even if an institution cannot prohibit or h- regulate a hateful speech, it can and must acknowledge and address the detrimental de- effects of offensive speech on individuals, groups and the campus climate at large. Recognizing the negative impact of hateful speech on a campus community should go hand in hand with a thoughtful deliberate plan of how and when to respond. And yeah, if you're going to res- allow the l- hateful speech, some places want to respond, and, well, you need a plan to respond to that. Um it what happened. Administrative responses, offensive speech, colleges and universities have the right to express their own views, including to respond to ugly speech that instills the committee and undermines value. institutional values like inclusion and equity, but well, no formula really exists for an effective meaningful counter-message or for deciding which required and from whom. Here are some points to keep in mind. We'll go through these points um, for, yeah, some further discussion. Do not simply invoke the First Amendment Part of an institution-wide statement will likely emphasize how valuable the First Amendment is and why it may preclude punishing the individuals who spoke. Some institutions end their statements, they're leaving the community with the impression that the institution can do nothing. The First Amendment may stop ministers from sanctioning or censoring speech. It does not preclude them from labeling the speech as wrong or from taking and explaining measures other than punishment to address the harm that the speech may have caused. So, um, yeah, I mean, the institution can't just say it's the First Amendment we don't want to do anything about it like, you know we're not we can't prohibit it and that's true but i mean i guess the author here is trying to pull more of a response be specific general statements about how hateful or general statements about how hate is harmful will fall flat bias speech targeted at a particular group instills fear and exclusion effective counter speech names the hate anti-black anti-semitic or anti-trans for example speaks directly to the targeted group and it emphasizes how the hateful language not for with the institutions values um, so yeah they're anti whatever I mean in some cases you know it's not really anti the group some people might find it anti you know it's a large discussion but I guess that is a way of calling it out focus on safety and inclusion let members of the targeted group know they are safe in our critical part of the campus community. University and college leaders should emphasize inclusion, what the campus is doing to ensure that members of the target community are safe and how students and others can access counseling and other resources." Um, yeah, if someone's harmed, they should get the help they need. Prepare, don't wait until the next expression of hate comes to your campus. Start preparing now. Ideally, a diverse group of staff, students, and administrators will regularly meet to discuss inclusion challenges and efforts free speech policies, ways to build dialogue across conflicting groups, and preparation for protests and other events. And uh, you don't—you always don't prepare for something before it happens. Prevent, like Taking care of it. it uh, taking care of it after it happens. Faculty response to offensive classroom speech inside the classroom principles of academic freedom, which are discreet from First Amendment rights, also apply. UC's policy on academic freedom states that the principles of academic freedom protect the freedom of inquiry and research, freedom of teaching, and freedom of expression. In publication, these freedoms enable the university to advance knowledge and to transmit it effectively to its students and to the public. Unlike freedom of speech, academic freedom focuses on disciplinary expertise. Because the fo- this focus on professional knowledge, viewpoint neutrality, academic context is not required in the way maybe on other campus-based contexts. And I guess if you're teaching... Can be super neutral about things because there might be one thing that's, or like in science, more scientifically accurate than some other area which people um, differ or have contentious views on. But as long as you allow for the debate, then it should work out fine. Professors determine what to include or not on their syllabi and how to teach the material. Math professors not have to accept an incorrect answer. equation, this charming professor can give a student a poor grade for arguing that the moon is made of green cheese. When it comes to offensive classroom speech that is germane onto the topic, however, things get more complicated. Consider, for instance, a class in U.S. immigration policy If a student expresses a perspective that is demeaning to immigrant students in the class, for instance, that the United States would be better off with no immigrants, the First Amendment likely prevents the professor from stopping the speech. And that's fair in political um, classes with political I- different political ideals. The law, however, does not preclude the faculty member from creating with students committee standards for classroom discussion. These guidelines become the framework for a Campbell classroom conversation, provide a vehicle for faculty members to help classroom conversations be protected based on evidence. And yeah, so it's like fair conversations, but not you know, if you have different viewpoints, you can of course share those. Following a challenging exchange in class, faculty members may consider reaching out to students whom the speech may have adversely affected, or to those who uttered the speech to discuss its impact. You know, this is really hard if it's like a viewpoint, like Pro immigration, anti immigration, you know, and you're not calling people names you're calling specific people out or things, and you just like have a certain ideal, like, you wouldn't use this, but you know, if there were certain names and things you're calling out, you would use that. Other responses to hateful speech. All members of the campus committee can utilize first-member rights to amplify their voice and message, for example, through opinion pieces and letters to the editor, the campus, or local paper. Protest is also an important means of expression in university life. For our colleges and universities should make it clear that shouting down a speaker in order to preclude others from hearing them. Oh, no. However, colleges and universities should make it clear that shouting to a speaker in order to exclude others from hearing their message is not protected by First Amendment. Campus policies should distinguish between constitutionally protected protests and sanctional disruption, as well as spell out the consequences of crossing that line. And yeah, there's other things that are more useful than just shouting at someone. I I would encourage people to do that. Respect to conveying disagreement with a controversial speaker or event in particular. Another potential response is to host hoax counter-programming at the same time, but another location. This allows members of the community who want to decry certain speech to come together and spread positive messages. Counter-programming also draws media attention, which often fuels hateful campaigns away from the provocative speakers. Some groups have even used visits by extremist speakers as an opportunity to raise money for causes they support, for instance, asking people to donate for every minute that the group stands outside the event. Yeah, so there's better ways to um, spread those messages than just calling, yelling at someone. You know, you can do something productive. A final word between the pandemic, deep political polarization, and flagging faith in the value of higher education. Today is a challenging time to be a teacher, administrator, or a university or college student. That is precisely why institutions of higher education need to double down on Clearly articulating the values, investing in teaching them, modeling how to live them. There will be times when norms shape against one one another, but that does not mean it is a zero-sum game. Being prepared to handle conflicts that may arise while elevating both expression and inclusion is essential if higher education is going to fulfill its promise. And I believe that's true. Making sure all viewpoints you can use. respectfully debating them, but you can debate the different viewpoints that people may have. Um, now I'd like to read a piece titled Academic Freedom and the Research University it begins with, when we imagine creating the modern research university at Novo, the, the first cornerstone to be laid is that of academic freedom. The American idea of academic freedom originated in Europe. It was faculty-trained European universities who brought with them the concept to American universities. About half of the members of the 1915 American Association of University Professors AAUP committee that first are articulated a statement of academic freedom in the United States were graduates of German universities. Academic freedom was critical in enabling faculty first to free themselves from sectarian religious domination and later to resist secular political control. The modern research university could not have emerged absent this commitment to academic freedom. However, I believe that the principles upon which academic freedom is founded must be elaborated and modified in ways that are relevant to the responsibilities and circumstances of today's universities. In the spring of 2003, it proposed that the University of California adopt a new statement on academic freedom. The policy was approved by the Assembly of the Academic Senate on 30th of July 2003 by a vote of 45 to 3 and became official university policy thereafter. This new policy is both traditional and innovative. It respects tradition in that it affirms the three components of academic freedom freedom of inquiry and research freedom of teaching and freedom of expression and publication it breaks new ground in that it explicitly recognizes the means of maintaining those freedoms the policy embraces the concept the faculty as members of a profession with distinctive competencies and responsibilities this concept is essential for the university to carry out its fundamental mission and is essential to our policy on academic freedom the new policy emerged from debates or so this next piece is titled course on palestinian politics The new policy emerged from debate sparked by a recent and heated controversy over a course in Palestinian literature. In spring 2003, a graduate student instructor at the Berkeley campus posted a description of his freshman composition course on the English department's website. The title of his course was The Politics and Poetics of Palestinian Resistance. The course description explained that students would examine how Palestinians created literature under the brutal weight of the Israeli occupation. The instructor's description made it clear that he was a staunch supporter of Palestinians. His course description ended with the suggestion that conservative thinkers are encouraged to seek other sections of the course. On its face, the instructor's course description was outrageous. It raised several immediate concerns. Departmental oversight of the course, senior faculty supervisors, or supervision of graduate student instructors, the basis on which the instructor may limit enrollment, student rights, and how they are are protected. Berkeley Chancellor Robert M. Brittle, working closely with the Academic Senate, resolved these questions quickly and skillfully. Senior faculty spoke with the instructor to ensure that he understood his obligations and responsibilities as an instructor at the university. The course description was changed. Students taking the course were advised that they had the right to express themselves and have their work evaluated without discrimination or harassment. They were also informed that they could bring concerns to the chair of the English department. A senior faculty member sat on all class meetings to ensure that the course was consistent with academic norms. the end, the students who took the class gave outstanding ratings to both the course content and the instructor. For a full account of the issues the course raised and how they were addressed, see the May to June 2003 issue of Academia, the Bulletin of the American Association of University Professors. Sproul's Statement on Academic Freedom. The incident, however, revealed a fundamental weakness in the university's policies. When my colleague Patrick Hayasi and I examined UC's academic freedom policy, we found that President Robert Gordon Sproul had versatility articulated it in 1934. It was formally adopted as University Policy in 1944. The policy is published in the Academic Personnel Manual and referred to as APM 10 Academic Freedom. The following announcement was originally made by the President of the University before the Northern Section of the Academic Senate on August 27, 1934, and is to be regarded as setting forth the principles which guide the President in these manners and accordingly stand as, in a certain sense, the policy of the University. The function of the university is to seek and transmit knowledge and to train students in the process whereby truth is to be made known. To convert or make comments is alien and hostile to this dispassionate duty. Where it becomes necessary in performing this function of a university to consider political, social, or sectarian movements, they are dissected and examined, not taught, and the conclusion left with no tipping of the scales to the logic of the facts. The university is founded upon faith and intelligence and knowledge, and it must defend their free operation. It must rely upon truth to combat error. Its obligation is to see that the conditions upon which questions are examined are those which give play to intellect rather than to passion. Essentially, the freedom of a university is the freedom of competent persons in the classroom. In order to protect this freedom, the university assumes the right to prevent exploitation of its prestige by unqualified persons or by those who would use it as platform for propaganda, therefore takes great care in the appointment of its teachers, must take corresponding care with respect to others who wish to speak in its name. The university respects personal belief as the private concern of the individual. It equally respects the constitutional rights of the citizen. It insists only that its members, its individuals, and as citizens shall likewise always respect and not exploit their university connections. The University of California is a creature of the state and its loyalty to the state will never waver. It will not aid, nor will it condone, actions contrary to the laws of the state. Its high function and its high privilege the university will steadily continue to fulfill, serving the people by providing faculties for investigation and teaching free from domination by parties, sects, or selfish interests. The university expects the state in return to its own great gain to protect this indispensable freedom, a freedom like the freedom of the press that is the... Heritage and the Right of, of Free People When President Sproul made this statement, California and the university were in turmoil. America was struggling with the Great Depression. There was tremendous labor unrest, often leading to large-scale demonstrations and strikes that ended in violence. Red red scare over a possible communist takeover of the nation alarmed citizens and public officials alike. At that time, the traditional view of collegiate life reflected the belief that students, faculty, and administration were all part of a collegial family. However, some professors and students had a different view. They openly questioned the nature and purpose of American universities, arguing that, far from being the agents of advancement and democracy, they assisted in maintaining an oppressive status quo. University of California faculty and students spoke out against the many problems facing the nation, poverty, corporate greed, racism, imperialism, and militarism. This activism offended powerful state politicians and civic leaders and consequently threatened the university's political and budgetary support. That was the context in which President Sproul issued his directive on academic freedom. Faculty would limit themselves to the dispassionate task of dissecting the logic of the facts. In return, the state would protect the indispensable freedom of the university to transmit knowledge. Political neutrality was a quid pro quo for political support, a bargain that enabled President Sproul to navigate the turbulent political waters of his time. But the Sproul policy is not a not simply a relic of another generation's political wars it also contains statements about academic freedom that few would disagree with for example the condemnation of using the classroom to make converts to political to a particular political view or using the university as a platform for propaganda yet when we looked to it for guidance on resolving the conflict over the palestinian poetry class the sprawl statement was unsatisfactory in important respects neutrality the principle that undergirds the Sprout policy does not constitute a sufficient criterion on which to decide cases of academic freedom. The logic of the facts can and does lead different people to dramatically different conclusions. Who decides what is partisan and what is not? Without criteria to make such distinctions, judgment must be made on other grounds. History has shown that those judgments are often based on whether or not the content of faculty, members, writings, or remarks offense specific groups. Furthermore, there is no necessary correlation between effective scholarship and neutrality, however, the concept of neutrality may be defined. Faculty frequently hold strong viewpoints, many of which challenge prevailing orthodoxies. They routinely contribute to political discourse on a wide range of politically controversial subjects, ranging from environmental hazards, welfare economics, and abortion policies, human cloning, religious doctrine, and affirmative action. Academic norms require that faculty stand ready to revise their conclusions in the light of new evidence. And experience has shown that faculty members can and do combine strong commitments to a particular point of view with the highest professional standards of teaching or research. Academic freedom is concerned with protecting the conditions with, that lead to the creation of sound scholarship and good teaching, not with maintaining political neutrality. Indeed, the Sproul policy's efforts to spell out a single criterion that would apply in all disputes over academic freedom was one of its weaknesses. Further, by formulating the issue in political terms, the policy suggested that the university's administration where the governing board should judge whether neutrality had been violated. Such an approach would not be consistent with our current understanding of shared governance, the role of peer review in judging research and teaching, whether the, the a division of authority among faculty, administration, and the governing board. In sum, the Sprout policy is outdated because of its political agenda and because it is sufficient, insufficiently helpful as a guide for resolving cases of academic freedom. For these reasons, we concluded it should be replaced. Other Policies on Academic Freedom We began by considering other policies on academic freedom put forth by the AAUP and a number of American universities. Many of these policies conceive of academic freedom in part as an extension of First Amendment rights expressed in the United States Constitution. However, this conception does not provide a sufficient basis for defining academic freedom. First Amendment rights are about individual freedoms relative to the state. The state cannot tell individual faculty members or anyone else that their ideas are wrong or inadequate. However, while the state may not pass judgment on the context of the speech of individual faculty members, universities judge the speech of faculty all the time. Universities award tenure, promotions, and salaries based upon an evaluation of the academic quality of faculty expression. The professor cannot rely on the First Amendment to protect him slash her from the judgment of colleagues that his slash her research or teaching is professionally inadequate. The various policies that we reviewed tended to focus on the rights and privileges of a faculty member. Invariably, they inserted a reference to the special obligation and responsibilities of the faculty member, but there was neither clarity about the standard for defining abilities, nor a procedure for judging whether or not fa- a faculty member met that standard. This matter concerned us because we believe that a standard of judgment should exist before a crisis or controversy arises. New UC policy on academic freedom. After concluding that existing policies did not provide an adequate basis for defining academic freedom, we enlisted Professor Robert Post to undertake the responsibility of formulating a new policy for the university. Professor Post is one of the nation's foremost experts on academic freedom has served as General Counsel for the AAUP and is now a member of the AAUP's Committee on Academic Freedom and Tenure. I asked him in consultation with Professor Gail Binson, Chair of the UC Faculty Senate, and James Holst, UC General Counsel, and his associates, David Brunbaum, Stephen Rosen, to draft a new policy for consideration. In a letter dated 12th of March 2003, Professor Post conveyed a draft of a three-paragraph academic freedom policy, the draft, has been reviewed and modified by various faculty committees and our general council, but its substance is fundamentally unchanged. The revised statement falls. The University of California is committed to upholding and preserving principles of academic freedom. These principles reflect the university's fundamental mission, which is to discover knowledge, to disseminate it to its students and to society at large. The principles of academic freedom protect freedom of inquiry and research, freedom of teaching and freedom of expression and publication. These freedoms enable the university to advance knowledge in its faculty to transmit it effectively to their students and to the public. The university also seeks to foster in its students a mature independence of mind, and this purpose cannot be achieved unless students and faculty are free within the classroom to express the widest range of viewpoints in accord with the standards of scholarly inquiry and professional ethics. The exercise of academic freedom entails correlative duties of professional care when teaching, conducting research, or otherwise acting as a member of the faculty. These views are set forth in the Faculty Code of Conduct, APM 15. Academic freedom requires that teaching a scholarship be assessed only by reference to the professional standards that sustain the university's pursuit and achievement of knowledge. The substance and nature of these standards properly lie within the expertise and authority of the faculty as a body. The competence of the faculty to apply these standards of assessment is recognized in the standing orders of the regents, which establish a system of shared governance between the administrator Administration and Academic Senate. Academic freedom requires that the Academic Senate be given primary responsibility for applying academic standards subject to appropriate review by the administration, and that the Academic Senate exercises responsibility in full compliance with applicable standards of professional care. Members of the faculty are entitled as university employees to the full protections of the Constitution of the United States and of the Constitution of the state of California. These protections are in addition to whatever rights, privileges, and responsibilities attached to the academic freedom of university faculty. The first and third paragraphs of the new policy substantially reflect current understandings of academic freedom expressed most fully in principles proposed by the AAUP. Paragraph 2 however, proposes a procedure for assessing the obligations and responsibilities of a faculty member, procedure that has not been advanced in any of the other policies we have examined. Explanation of the new policy the first paragraph begins with the traditional definition of the mission of the university: the discovering and disseminating knowledge to our students and to the public. It follows the AAUP statement and refers to the tripartite division of academic freedom derived from this mission: freedom of inquiry and research, freedom of teaching, and freedom of expression, publication. These freedoms for individual faculty members are part of AAUP's general report. On the committee of academic freedom of tenure, 1915, and are also referred. Or, and are also referenced in the AAUP's 1940 Statement of Principles on Academic Freedom and Tenure. They have been widely accepted and endorsed. The right to freedom of expression and publication refers to the right both to speak in public as a scholar and a citizen, and also to speak as a participant in the University's affairs in one respect. However, the first paragraph goes beyond the AAUP. Principles by addressing the relationship between academic freedom and teaching It states that one essential aspect of faculty teaching is to instill independence of mind in their students, posting this letter of a tra- a Transmittal, explained this academic freedom in teaching and sometimes justified solely in terms of the need to disseminate to students the fruits of scholarly research. But in my view, academic freedom in teaching also depends on the need to attain the distinct educational objective characteristic of the universities of fostering in our students' ability to think for themselves as mature adults. To fulfill this objective, faculty members themselves must have the freedom to model intellectual independence in the classroom. Further, they must create a classroom environment in which students have freedom to express their own perspectives and question those of others without fear of negative consequences for their grades or academic standing. The third paragraph of the revision makes clear that university faculty enjoy constitutional rights under the Constitution of the United States and that Constitution of the State of California just as other citizens enjoy such rights. The second paragraph is where the policy departs from more traditional statements. It addresses the relationship between academic freedom, and the professional autonomy of the professorate. Post explain The historical roots of academic freedom lie in this autonomy. The basic idea is that what counts as knowledge, scholarship, and teaching turns on the application of professional standards of judgment. This idea has many implications. The most important is that the quality of faculty work is to be judged only by reference to professional standards of academic judgment is not to be determined by reference to the political decisions of the electorate, the priorities of financial donors or the managerial priorities of the administration. Academic freedom historically developed in this country precisely because of the need to insulate faculty from these inappropriate bi- bases of judgment. Second important implication of the idea that the mission of the university depends upon the application professional standards is that faculty have to have the responsibility both to assess the work of their peers and also to submit to the submit to the assessment of their peers. This responsibility is what underlies decisions concerning hiring promotion awarding tenure, approval of course descriptions, evaluations of teaching, and so forth. A third implication is that faculty must undertake to comply with professional standards in the performance of their duties. In the realm of teaching, for example, professional standards require that faculty accord students the right to think freely and to exercise independent judgment, that they evaluate students solely on the merits of their work, and that they not penalize students merely because of their political, ethical, or religious perspectives. If academic freedom implies professional autonomy, it also implies professional responsibility. Academic freedom does not shield faculty from judgment or evaluation. If they act in ways that are professionally unethical or incompetent, we specify the nature of the professional responsibility of faculty in Section 15 of the APM Faculty Code of Conduct. This new policy makes clear that academic freedom does not rest principally on the First Amendment rights of individual. Faculty nor is it contingent on the sufferance of the state, rather academic freedom is rooted in notions of the faculty as members of an academic profession that has distinctive competencies essential for the functioning of the modern university. Faculty as members of this academic profession set their own standards governing how knowledge is created, assessed, and advanced. Implication of the new policy. This new policy does not seek to change in any way the authority of the Board of Regents to govern the University of California or the responsibility of the administration to perform its appropriate role in governance. It is intended to clarify something that has not been explicitly stated in any of the other policies we have examined, namely that primary responsibility for issues involving academic freedom rests with the faculty. The faculty member is working on a question germane his her discipline and addresses that question in an academically responsible way, adhering to the standards of his such her discipline. The institution has no basis for sanctioning the individual, no matter how controversial that person's viewpoint may be. So while the, prerogatives of the university are limited. Faculty are bound by professional standards and are subject to professional review and sanction. Faculty cannot violate professional standards and defend their conduct on the basis of academic freedom. The reliance of peer review is fundamentally important. Without peer evaluation, the modern university could not function without the freedom to explore within the parameters of academic competence. Professional norms the university cannot achieve its mission of advancing knowledge. That is why academic freedom is afforded special protection in American universities. At the same time, the new Policy describes how the rights of the faculty are accompanied by broad responsibilities regarding the conduct of teaching and research. The assessment of evidence and the regard that must be given to alternative viewpoints. Because of their professional expertise and their wide experience with the daily realities of teaching, research, and public service, the faculty have distinctive competencies that make them the members of the university community most qualified to judge on issues of academic freedom. The new policy has disappointed some people who prefer to see a Co- codification of what behavior is permitted, what it is prohibited. I understand this is our, however, we already have a statement governing faculty behavior in APM 15, the Faculty Code of Conduct. The code, for example, forbids discrimination against a student on political grounds. As teachers, the professors encourage the free pursuit of learning of their students. They hold before them the best scholarly standards of their discipline. Professors demonstrate respect for students as individuals and they adhere to their proper roles as intellectual guides. And counselors, professionals make every reasonable effort to foster honest academic conduct and to assure their evaluations of students reflect each student's true merit. They avoid any exploitation, harassment, or discriminatory treatment of students. They protect their academic freedom. APM 15, Section 2A, page 4. The code sets forth ethical principles and provides examples of unacceptable faculty behaviors that are subject to university discipline. No such list of examples can ever be complete. The code simply illustrates the types of unacceptable conduct that can be derived from the ethical principles. A new policy on academic freedom affirms the principles that faculty conduct will be assessed in reference to academic values and professional norms, an inherently broad and flexible standard that is properly left to the determination of the faculty. This articulation of academic freedom implies that the key to proper governance and responsibility faculty conduct lies in the careful or Recruitment and advancement of faculty based on academic values, reliance on faculty governing themselves wisely, and the expectation that they will fulfill their responsibility to discipline faculty members, violate the norms of the academic profession, faculty governance, peer review, academic freedom gave rise to the research university as we know it today. We would be wise to anticipate the boundaries will change between disciplines and between the university and other institutions. How research is conducted and how education takes place will change, sources of support will become More volatile and varied professional and political relationships will become more complex. The challenges facing the research university will only expand. We wish to meet these challenges wisely and responsibly. We must reaffirm the importance of academic freedom and the accompanying responsibilities of the faculty. This requires that universities rely not on increasingly elaborate rules and regulations constraining faculty behavior, but rather on the values and norms that must govern faculty professional conduct. This in turn requires reaffirmation that modern universities can flourish only when there is a system of shared governance in which faculty are given authority with accompanying freedom and responsibility over academic matters. Now, as that previous piece led us into, um, I'd like to discuss, well, the you see um, academic freedom policy. So, academic freedom. The University of California is committed to upholding and preserving principles of academic freedom. These principles reflect the university's fundamental mission, which is to discover knowledge and to disseminate it to its students and to society at large. The principles of academic freedom protect freedom of inquiry and research, freedom of teaching, and freedom of expression and publication. These freedoms enable the university to advance knowledge and to transmit it effectively to its students and to the public. The university also seeks to foster in its students mature independence of mind, and this purpose cannot be achieved unless students and faculty are free within the classroom to express the widest range of viewpoints in accord with the standards of scholarly inquiry and professional ethics. The exercise of academic freedom entails creative duties, professional care when teaching, conducting research, or otherwise acting as a member of the faculty. These duties are set forth in the Faculty Code of Conduct, APM 15. Academic freedom requires that teaching and scholarship be assessed by reference to the professional standards that sustain the university's pursuit and achievement of knowledge. The substance and nature of these standards properly lie within the expertise and authority of the faculty as a body. The competence of the faculty to apply these standards of assessment is recognized in the standing orders of the region, which enable a system of shared governance between the administration and the academic senate. Academic freedom requires that the academic senate be given primary responsibility responsibility for applying academic standards subject to appropriate review by the administration and that the academic center exercises responsibility in full compliance with the full standards of professional care. Members of the faculty are entitled, as university employees, to the full protections of the Constitution of the United States and the, of the Constitution of the state of California. These protections are in addition to whatever rights, privileges, and responsibilities attached to the academic freedom of university faculty. Um, and then I guess here's an appendix to it. Um, starts with Office of the President, September 29, 2003. Change laboratory directors, Vice President, Agriculture and Natural Resources, Dear Colleagues, Revised Academic Personal Policy 10, Academic Freedom. Encloses the Revised Academic Personal Policy 10, Academic Freedom, which is effective immediately. This new statement on academic freedom for faculty supersedes the previous APM 10. Previous statements on academic freedom was first issued by President Robert G. Sproul in 1934 as part of a series of university regulations later incorporated into university policies. APM 10. After extensive consultation with faculty and other members of the university community, I'm pleased to issue this revised policy. The policy is based on the traditional cornerstones of academic freedom, freedom of inquiry, and research, freedom of teaching, and freedom of expression publication. The policy establishes that faculty have primary responsibility for articulating the professional standards by which academic freedom may be sustained. I would especially like to thank Professor Robert C. Post, who is a member of the law school faculty at Berkeley and distinguished scholar on First Amendment law for his thoughtful advice. I would also like to thank the Academic Senate for its comprehensive review of the proposal. This new policy does not seek to change in any way the authority of the Board of Regents to govern the University of California or the responsibility of the administration to perform its appropriate role in governance. The policy is intended to be read in conjunction with APM 15 Faculty Code of Conduct and with the Regents 1970 policy on academic freedom. Although this new policy applies to the university's faculty, its issuance does nothing to diminish the rights and responsibilities enjoyed by other academic appointees. Discussion of the background. Leading to this revised policy is so, presented in a paper entitled Academic Freedom and the Research University, but into this letter. Sincerely, Richard C. Atkinson, President. Enclosure I guess here we can go over that. DC members, President's Cabinet, Academic Council Chair Pitts, Associate Vice President Boyette, Assistant Vice President Switsk, Special Assistant Gardner, and Principal Officers of the Regents. Preamble to the Statement of Principles. Student freedom of scholarly inquiry. The University of California seeks to provide and sustain an environment conductive to sharing, extending and critically examining knowledge and values and furthering the search for wisdom. Effective performance of these central functions requires that students be free within their respective level in the educational process, to pursue knowledge in accord with the appropriate standards of scholarly inquiry. But the nature of student freedom of scholarly inquiry has not been well articulated in the university. This lack of clarity was brought to the attention of the University Committee on Academic Freedom UCAF in 2003 as a result of student awareness of the recent revisions to the university's policy on academic freedom APM 10. UCAF agreed to examine the issue and a joint academic senate student affairs system-wide work group was established to this end. The work group consists of faculty from UCAF, academic senate faculty leaders, student regents, student representatives from campuses, divisional campus student affairs representatives, staff from the office of the president. The work group's deliberations became clear that the issue is more complex than first thought. This was primarily due to articulating some principles that account for differences in student roles based on whether they are undergraduate students, graduate students, or postdoctoral fellows. Within the range of roles, the concept of student has varied. Operational meanings associated with intellectual maturity and development, as well as with academic responsibilities such as graduate student teaching and participation as a researcher colleague. The most salient guarding principle Or the most salient guiding principle that has emerged from our deliberations is that academic freedom is conferred in the University of California by virtue of faculty membership. As such, student freedom of scholarly inquiry is ultimately derived from by faculty academic freedom. Student freedom of scholarly inquiry should also not be construed as adversarial to the faculty from which it derives. The academic freedom of the faculty is not absolute. The faculty code of conduct describes the responsibilities of the faculty in relation to the two students and specifically situations where controversial opinions are not germane to the subject of the course. These principles are intended as an aspirational statement to guide members of the university community towards or toward the goal of preserving an environment connected to promoting the highest standards of teaching and scholarship. Statement of principle student freedom of scholarly inquiry the university seeks to foster in its students a mature independence of mind and this purpose cannot be achieved unless students are free to express a wide range of viewpoints in accord with the standards of scholarly inquiry for the competence of student work at each level of the educational process. The substance and nature of these standards probably lie within the expertise and authority of the faculty as a body as such is primarily The responsibility of the faculty is set forth in the faculty code of conduct to ensure that student freedom of scholarly inquiry is fostered and preserved in the university while there is substantial variation in students' competence to engage in scholarly inquiry based on their level in the educational process the faculty has the major responsibility to establish conditions that protect and encourage all students in their learning teaching and research activities such conditions include for example free inquiry and exchange of ideas the right to critically examine present and discuss controversial Material relevant to a course of instruction, enjoyment of constitutionally protected freedom of expression, and the right to be judged by faculty in accordance with fair procedures solely on the basis of the student's academic performance and conduct. For students to develop a mature independence of mind, they must be free in the classroom to express a wide range of viewpoints in accord with standards of scholarly inquiry. Irrelevant to the topic at hand, no student can abridge the rights of other students when... Exercising the right to differ, students should be free to take civil and reasoned exception to the data or views offered in any course of study and to reserve judgment about matters of opinion. They are responsible for learning the content of any course for, of study for which they are enrolled. Faculty has authority for all aspects of the course, including content structure, relevance or alternative points of view and evaluations, all decisions affecting a student's academic standing, including assignment of grades, should be based upon academic considerations administered fairly and equitably under policies established by the academic senate. In professional curriculum, such decisions may include consideration of performance according to accepted professional standards. Students may also serve as instructors under the supervision of the faculty. The faculty retains authority all over all aspects of the course, including content, structure, evaluations, and delegation of authority for the course, and must base the guidance of student instructors on accepted scholarly and professional scholarly and professional standards of confidence in teaching. Subject to such authority, however, such student instructors share with faculty the freedom and responsibility to present concepts to lead discussion in class and to ensure the appropriate and civil treatment of their members of the academic community. Faculty guidance and supervision of student research is desirable and appropriate. Students' freedom of inquiry while conducting research may not be abridged by decisions contrary to accepted scholarly and professional standards, students are entitled to the protection of their intellectual rights, including recognition of their participation in supervised research and their research with faculty, consistent with general accepted standards of attribution and not acknowledgement in collaborative settings. These protections are in addition to and distinct from the full protections of the constitution of the United States, and the constitution of the state of California. Oh, yeah. now I'd like to discuss an article titled When professors offend students, classroom norms are changing. Where's the line and who decides? So it begins with, Erica Cope admits it wasn't a great lesson. Oh, well. Interesting story. In the fall of 2020, Cope, like faculty members across the country, was teaching virtually from her kitchen, kitchen table. None of her students, all freshmen at Buffalo State College, seemed particularly engaged in an introductory writing co- course. The discussions were scarce. Faced with a sea of black screens, Cope and adjunct lecturer couldn't tell whether her lessons were landing. Um, see, yeah, people not paying a lot of, or providing a lot of feedback you can't read the room cope says a virtual teaching there is no room true it's harder to see people with an online setting so she decided to spur her class into contributing the day's lesson was about cancel culture students had read a few articles on the topic beforehand cope wanted to present them with opinion that at first blush they'd object to but that would actually be more nuanced than it appeared she said this is me like speaking honestly and you guys have to respond to me honestly with what you think with what you feel about this, so I'm sick of talking about Black Lives Matter. It's of course some like controversial take that people you know would have some response to. Though clumsily articulated Cope acknowledges It's an opinion that she holds while Cope, who is white, supports Black Lives Matter in general. She thinks that conversation about the movement can be performative and that it should focus not just on police brutality, but also on education, healthcare, poverty, and other issues that affect Black people in America. She wanted her students to engage with that sort of critique, which she thought would be familiar to them. Her choice awards was very, very poor, she says. Um, Yeah, so just something to think more about in the class. It didn't work. It was a mistake, Cope says, and I recognize that. We'll see what she means by that. Many of the students in the class were black, and some of them were pretty upset. Cope recalled, now everyone wanted to talk, and the class stretched beyond the normal time. Cope said she tried to make it clear where she was coming from, but overall, the lesson just flopped. She left the class period with an uneasy feeling, whoa, that didn't go the way I thought it would. I mean, they're started to get engagement in the class at that point. Before teaching the same course in the spring, Cope revised the lesson. She says it went much better. Yeah, the more you... Each lesson, the better it gets. Then April 2021, a 15-second clip from the lecture gone wrong surfaced on social media showing Cope saying she was sick of talking about Black Lives Matter. I feel like she said that with all her might, the student who posted the video told the Buffalo News saying Cope's statement was insensitive, especially because the class was mostly made up of Black students. The student had shared the video online to coincide with the protest against racial bias against students news report. And especially if you put a small clip, you know, you get things construed. Uh, major media outlets, including the New York Post and the Daily Mail, picked up the story. Online, Cope recalled, people said she was a racist and embarrassment that she should be fired. Buffalo State's president issued a statement that Cope's messages as presented is unacceptable and said the chief diversity officer would be reviewing the incident. The magnitude of the attention overwhelmed Cope. She was scared that her career would be permanently derailed. Few of her colleagues seemed appalled. The others reached out to say this could happen to anyone and... Yeah, they'd have to review the situation more. It's happened to a lot of people. Though cope situation extreme, many professors have found themselves in a similar position. When or several of their students are hurt by something they said or did while teaching, those students then ask or demand that the institution take action, sometimes by inflicting punishment. Um, yeah. You no, know, taking something maybe out of context in a way. It's clear that norms regarding if and how certain topics can be in the classroom have shifted. Frequently, these incidents involve not challenges of students' ideas, remarks they say denigrate their identity, especially in the wake of George Floyd's murder by a police officer. Many colleges have promoted the ideals of diversity, equity, inclusion, and have publicly promised students that their campuses will be safe places to attend. But professors want a productive learning environment, which for many means challenging their students and at times presenting them with material that can make them uncomfortable. Student ideas about what is appropriate, what is offensive, and what is discriminatory can differ from their instructors and from one another's. That gap leads to complaints and sometimes ultimatums. When a professor does something in the classroom which students object, What should happen next? Who should decide? And that is an interesting question that has to be answered by some universities. Debates over what's suitable to bring up in the classroom and how much latitude professors should be given to instruct how they wish are nothing new. We might be in a moment of slightly more accelerated social change to Jennifer Ruth, a professor of film studies at Portland State University, who writes regularly about academic freedom issues. But there has always been discussion about what's appropriate pedagogy. And yeah, especially when you have like a tougher political climate, then of course these issues will come up more. That accelerated social change stems in part from higher ed shifting student demographics. Over the last two decades, the share of undergraduates identified as a race other than white has increased to about 45% from 30%. That rate of racial diversification has not been matched among the faculty. Many of us in academia have come to learn by quote, quote common sense. What might be like good to say that stirs up critical thinking, but doesn't offend people says Hendry Don, Associate Vice Chancellor for Health, Equity, Diversity and Inclusion at University of California, Davis Health. But we've learned that on a fairly homogeneous group of people, the traditional group of students that we've seen highly represented in our universities says, as student body changes, there's a need to update our sensibilities. And yeah, but at the same time, you should use the, whatever you use with one group of students, you should use with the other. You shouldn't just separate out by, you know, the racial demographics of that group of students. That's because words have emotional impact and can lead to both psychological and physical problems, says Tom, who is also a psychiatrist. If you're a student from an underrepresented group sitting in a lecture, who hear something hurtful. You might be thinking, wait, the professor just say what I thought they said. Oh, could they? Probably not. I'm reading this wrong. But being too sensitive, should I say something? All that cognitive load makes it hard for the student to participate in the classroom conversation, Tom says. In other words, the professor has not created a productive learning environment. And there are times, though, students do think about too much about it you know, tries to try to make things feel, is this really as offensive as it is? Or they, you know, try to bring up that question too much. But I mean, that is a true thought. Marcia Chetelain, a professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University, emphasized at a recent Chronicle event, the importance of considering climate before introducing sensitive materials in the classroom. For example, to openly use racial slurs in the moment in which the majority of my students have watched someone die on their smartphone, students have seen the election of essentially a white nationalist, she said. Maybe it's time to take a different tone and take the temperature of the room before you introduce certain ideas. Not because it's not important to teach those ideas, but we're always teaching in a context. And yeah, if, you know, you do take, you know, some of those issues were bad. They mentioned some people, I guess, take it as, you know, super, you know, take it super far in a certain way then yeah you should take um some moments to maybe look at what you review in that classroom setting in her experience she said good teachers do not have these moments in the classroom because they thought about what they're doing and if you prepare ahead of time things will go smoother of course some scholars strongly disagree they argue that today's students are eager to pounce upon an instructor who does something they don't like and they see academies Administrative classes locking the spine to defend those structures, and sometimes that is the truth. Randall L. Kennedy, a professor at Harvard Law School, who was in conversation with Chatelaine, said during the event that faculty members are not being disciplined for doing a bad job of teaching, rather they're being disciplined in part because university leaders are buckling to those who are who are making the most noise. A core principle of university life should be that ideas, even the most re- reprehensible, ought to be subject to discussion. He said, "What concerns Kennedy?" He said. Is that at uh, more and more institutions, students will say there are certain words that cannot be said, and at certain institutions, you do not want to say, um, uh, you know, words some institutions will not allow. Um, I wrote books, said so Randall L. Kennedy. And if a teacher were to name the book, the teacher would be disciplined in some places that it seems to me is, you know, a bad thing, he said. And, I mean, if you're not just doing it to name the book, but you're doing it to more like, um, let's say, you know, if you're doing it more to you know, really express the ideas in the book rather than just name the book because it's a word you want to say, then I see that sometimes, you know, they talk about banned books or whatever, you know, so people are up in arms around them. Like, is are those banned ideas really, you know, allowed to be said in the school more than these other words that might be banned or these banned ideas in those books, you know? I really think the banned books ideas... You know, especially on one side of the eye, or not the aisle, but like one side of the spectrum, like we're, you know, it's really in contention about banned books, but on the other side, you know, the same side that might be protecting the banned books might be trying to ban the other books. It's banned some other books, and you know, asking why are they doing that if they really want the free expression of knowledge. So, yeah, that's an interesting thought. Chadley complained that many faculty members do not have the talent, the gravitas, the sensitivity, and the thoughtfulness to teach her book. She's seen people who are out of their depth and trying to sensitively and thoughtfully gauge the difficult history of that word. And, you know, maybe some people can't discuss that book, you know. Not everyone can discuss every topic or have the knowledge too. And if you increase your knowledge, you might be able to teach that book better. And colleges may bear some responsibility for students' expectation that their sense of Abilities be respected. They tend to emphasize what fun and exciting places they can be, and as of late, what a safe and inclusive place they can't be, says Keithy Whittington, professor of politics at Princeton University, who is chair of the Academic Freedom Alliance, newly formed organization devoted to protecting academic freedom. The idea that college will be like a family and like a home generates certain expectations, and those expectations are in quite a bit of tension with how many academics envision a scholarly environment, Whittington says, many faculty members think that part of what it means to be a diverse and inclusive institution is to have a lot of people who disagree with each other and who will express those disagreements. And yeah, that's part of the institution. You don't want it to feel like it's everyone's safe space and some hard ideas will come out. Hard ideas will come out for the sake, as long as it's for the sake of discussions, for the sake of discussion, as long as you're not trying to target people, it's fine, those ideas will come out. Complicating matters further is that in recent years, universities have ramped up their reporting mechanisms regarding bias, discrimination, and harassment. Students are increasingly entering the university already aware of those sort of concerns as Whittington. Obviously, some of that's important and necessary, but those new mechanisms also create a whole new toolkit. Whittington says that people used to report investigative behavior that doesn't rise to harassment discrimination. People call discrimination for a lot of things that aren't actually discrimination. It's just there's something they're upset with. What sort of behavior by a professional should trigger intervention? At what point does a professor's conduct warrant immediate removal from the classroom? Um, at this point, you know, those those are interesting questions to look at. So we continue further. Sometimes the answer is obvious after complaints came in regarding Andre Duclos, then an adjunct professor in the economics department at Bowling Green State University, became clear that he crossed the lines with Peter G. Vanderhart, the department chair. In April 2021, an investigation found that Duclos had made insulting and unprofessional comments to students. One complaint was that he had recently engaged the only black female student class in a conversation about Makia Bryant, a 16-year-old black girl who was fatally shot by the police in Columbus, Ohio, and said to that student, she's not really a child hunt, she's bigger than you. He also offered the student 20 bonus points if she could write 100 words about the positive things Black Lives Matter had done. And yeah, that's sort of um, pointing out a student individually. In response to a student's assignment in the fall of 2020 about how minorities are affected economically by stereotypes, the investigative report stated that Declos had commented in part be honest, racism is not a problem. The media has simply told you that to keep you, your hate brewing. Mexico is the main illegal alien country, but most drugs and criminals come from the South. The wall is changing that. Um, I mean, uh, it doesn't really go towards the assignment, but, what, but yeah, it's an opinion. Since reported other troubling comments, and two students said they had stopped attending Declos class because of his conduct, and yeah, his conduct did get a little um probably out of the range of academic freedom. Well Vanderhart says he does worry that in general it's too easy for students to sculpt faculty speech. In this case Declos had clearly created an environment that was inhospitable to learning. He's paid to do a job and his conduct wasn't impinging on that job, Vanderhart says. So it was the right thing to do to remove him. Vanderhart saw or saw the final exam and also assigned final grades The department had not planned to employ Declos the subsequent summer and fall. Vanderhart said he would not seek him out in the future. And, um, yeah. So, it's interesting. It's getting, you know, that is one case where I guess the faculty did go beyond where they should have. Declos told the Chronicle that he doesn't promote hate in the classroom. That's why, even though I might be a Trumper, I don't put up with MAGA. I don't put up with BLM. I don't put up with any of the hate stuff because it throws off the aura of the classroom. He argues that the black female student brought the hate in and says that he was beginning to wonder if that young lady was maybe a little racist on the backward side. Yes, black people can be racist. Uh, I don't know. I wonder what um, prompted this response from him. acknowledges he made a few mistakes on this, but they wouldn't keep me there for a year and a half if I was picking fights with all the black students in the college. Maybe he would have eventually gotten to that place. Another classes, is less clear that the learning environment has been irreparably reputed. In November 2019, Catherine West Lowry, a senior lecturer of accounting at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, found herself in hot water. Lowry typically offered extra credit to... Students in her introductory accounting lecture who put together short videos about course concepts. During one class period, she showed a clip that former students had created based on a scene from *Downfall*, German language drama to the days of Adolf Hitler*. Okay, this seems like we're gonna see further, but this just seems like students getting offended for no reason. The film is often parodied by adding English subtitles that are unrelated to the film's German dialogue. In the students' version, the subtitles refer to accounting concepts in Pari's class. Hitler yells at one of his advisors don't you dare finish that sentence. I'll send you to a chamber and it won't be the chamber of commerce. I mean, it's it's kind of borderline, but like I could see some people getting offended at it, but still it's like, not super like clearly as the last example, like went over the line and that's why this article is about where is the line? Um, Around that time on campus, there have been reports of swastikas drawn and chalk on the walls of the Fine Arts Center. One of Lowry's students complained about the video to a rabbi on campus, who then informed Lowry's dean, the Chronicle previously reported. At that point, the administration do administrations do, just sort of go into defense mode and ask the lawyers, you know, to avoid any liability on the university's part, says Eve Weinbaum. Co-president of the Faculty and librarian Union, Lowry was moved from the classroom for the semester. Some students were upset. Lowry's oust and protested by walking out. The university spokesperson said at the time in a statement that a decision to remove Lowry was made after the business concluded that objectively bits of material had been presented to students. Yeah, some people, uh, maybe in some cases, could you could say arguably a little too offended by the clip. Weinbaum said she's sympathetic to the individual student's response, but To being shown the clip, but she wishes the incident had been used as a teachable moment. Those concerns could have been talked about in the classroom, where university were supposed to be educating people about these things, she says. And if it really did draw the line, you know, you could say no more next quarter, no more of this um, type of action to be presented, or these type of videos to be presented. Why mom worries that it's non-tenure track faculty members who more often face repercussions when these sort of complaints arise. Tenured faculty members have more social capital, she says. They know the dean and the department chairs' complaints don't have the same impact on their career, but when you have don't have that job security and you don't have tenure to protect your academic freedom, those people are the people who are being penalized. Lowry did not respond to an interview request. And um yeah, this is interesting, you know. If you have tenure, your academic freedom seems to be lower than if you do. Um, No matter how they end, the investigations themselves can be nerve-wracking. Yeah, for all sides. Uh, Lori Shek, a writer and part-time faculty member at the New School, says she felt powerless during an inquiry into her use of a racial slur in a graduate course in the spring of 2019. Shek, who is white, was quitting the... Writer James Baldwin in reference to the 2016 documentary film, I'm not your Negro. The film's title substitutes Negro for the N-word, which Baldwin had used when he made a similar statement in a television appearance. The clip is included in the documentary. Sex says she wanted to talk about what it meant to sanitize this language and change the word out for maybe some word that people found more socially acceptable. Um, Yeah, and this continues on. We'll talk about more in the next episode. Thank y'all for listening and I'll see y'all later.